Remembering. That is the theme of the Scripture from cover to cover. Remembering. From the very beginning of history, God has established that certain dates, uh, significant moments, and that important events are to be celebrated. And that is why you see that theme in the Scripture over and over and over again. God is saying to His people, remember, remember, remember. It is the theme of the Scripture. Remember the past faithfulness of God in your life. Remember the past grace that God has brought in your life. Remember past mercies that God had brought you through. Remember the hand of God that supernaturally worked in you and through you in the past. Remember where you were and where you are today. Remember. Question, why do you think the God who created us, the God who made us, the God who knows our very DNA, every one of us, the God who knows every cell in each of our bodies as our Maker and Creator. He knew what a forgetful creatures we are. But not only that, the reason God says remember, remember, remember is because the act of remembering fills us with gratitude and with thankfulness. There is nothing can be more disheartening than dealing with an ungrateful person. I mean someone for whom you have done so much, uh, and the person just takes it for granted. Or, or there is nothing more heartbreaking than dealing with someone for whom you have made a huge and great sacrifices, and all they say to you is, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? <laughs> Remembering the past graciousness of God always leads us to being thankful and grateful people. That's why God wants us to remember. That is why, because remembering brings about gratitude. A while back, I read a story in the newspapers. It's a well-known story of a person who was a memory expert. Uh, He specialized in helping people to remember names and events, particularly in sales conventions and in in different uh, business executives. He would be the favorite speaker, and he would come, and uh, he, in fact, earned a doctorate on the subject of remembering. He wrote books on the subject of remembering. He had fashioned a very popular course study on systematic memory development in one's life. And he would charge a small fortune to come and speak to groups of people. And one day, he was invited to be a keynote speaker to a convention in Cleveland, Ohio, of scientists. These scientists were skeptical, but they said, well, you know, we want to hear what he has to say. So they all signed up, and the many scientists gathered in Cleveland, Ohio at this convention, and they came that night, and everybody was there looking forward to hearing this great expert, and he didn't show up. So they called him in California where he lived, (laughs) and he simply said, I just forgot all about it. (laughs) I forgot all about it. And our Lord Jesus Christ knew all about this proclivity to forgetfulness, and that is why he instituted the Lord's Supper as means of not forgetting not forgetting that colossal sacrifice that He made on that cross, not forgetting the enormous price that He paid for your salvation and for mine, not forgetting His gracious act of self-giving so that we may be forgiven. Now, of course, the danger of constantly having these services as a ritual, just as a habit, 
the danger is it becomes a regular ritual, and, and you forget the meaning. In fact, the danger of keeping the symbolism and losing the meaning is the very problem of the church in Corinth. Even today, this great remembrance of that colossal sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is misused and abused in some traditions. Some have turned it into a somber event. Others have turned it into an institutional requirement that actually people believe that they are saved when they take communion. Well, I'm going to explain to you in a minute that communion is for the believers. Communion cannot save you. Jesus saved you, and you remember His death and resurrection when you participated in communion. Others still practice it on a very few occasions. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, turn to it with me if you haven't already, Paul corrects so many of the misunderstandings, misunderstandings that need to be corrected today, <laughs> what the Lord's table is all about. It is a loving celebration, a true spiritual enrichment, and not a time for selfish indulgence. In the case of the Corinthians, they turned it into a time for shaming the poor Christians. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it turned out to be a time of scandalizing the church of Jesus Christ in front of an unbelieving world. And in correcting them, the Apostle Paul gives them three things. First of all, Paul is saying, stop perverting the Lord's table. Secondly, he said, understand the purpose of this table— understand what it's really all about. And thirdly, he's saying there is a right and a wrong way to celebrate the Lord's table. Let's look at them very quickly. First of all, he said, stop perverting it. How could these Corinthians were perverting the Lord's table? If you look at verse 18, these believers in Corinth, they were cantankerous. They could not agree on anything. I mean, they absolutely disagreed on every issue. It's like a friend of mine was talking about a certain group of people who shall remain nameless to whom he belongs. And he said, I'll tell you something about my people. Whenever you get four of them in a meeting together, you get five opinions. <laughs> and he's right. Now, these Corinthians could not agree on anything. They loved divisiveness in the church. These Corinthians loved creating division and, and fights and arguments. So these Corinthians, each of them, were in love with their own opinion, and they were not listening to anybody else. Instead of seeking to serve one another, they looked for opportunities to stir dissension. And the Apostle Paul said, I believe this about you, Corinthians. And sadly, instead of looking out for the welfare of one another— Instead of loving one another, they were looking out for number one. Instead of seeking the kingdom of God first and His righteousness first, they were promoting themselves first. Uh, instead of honoring the Lord, they sought the honor for themselves. Instead of being servants of one another, they set themselves as masters. Instead of being subject to spiritual authority, they absolutely despised spiritual authority. And the reason for all of this dissension is carnality. Some are going to see verse 19 to be a very disturbing verse. Look at it with me, please. What Paul is saying here is that God uses these cantankerous Christians 
God uses these carnal and divisive Christians to purify the righteous Christians. Even these divisive, cantankerous, contentious people, God used them to purify us and to sanctify us. If you see these people as a problem, you won't grow through it. But if you see them as God's way of sanctifying you, purifying you, it's like the fire. The fire, when the gold is put on fire, the fire basically helps separate the gold from the dross. And that's what they do. So, remember, give thanks to God for them. I know, I know this is a hard sell. Listen, trust me. I know it experientially is a hard sell. Uh, but there can be no doubt that the Apostle Paul is saying that these fractious people, not merely disruptive, but they can be destructive. And that is why we should not really put up with them for too long. The Bible gives us with clarity what to do with such people. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10, the Bible said, "...reject a fractious person after a first and a second warning." knowing that such a person is perverted and sinning and is being self-condemned. In the Corinthian church, these fractious people, they were operating even at the Lord's table. Look at verse 20. Paul said, it could no longer be called the Lord's table. May God forbid ever that happens here. They had the ceremony, but not the celebration. They had the form but not the substance. And Christ had no part of these services. Why? Because in their hearts, they had no love for one another. Lord forbid it. They may have talked about love. Oh, they probably sang about love, and they read about love, but their hearts were hard as rocks. Paul is going to say more about love in chapter 13 when we get to it. They had so much pride and selfishness in their hearts that their walk did not match their talk. And that is why, secondly, they needed to comprehend afresh what the Lord's table is all about. Look at verses 23 all the way to 26. For I received from the Lord what I've passed on to you. Paul is saying here, this is not Paul's opinion. This is not Paul's ideas. This is not Paul's thoughts. Paul is merely reinstating God's truth. He is merely reinstating God's revelation, and that's what we're all about. What is that? That in the midst of betrayal, God did a magnificent thing. That in the midst of the world's malignant evil, God established His good. That in the midst of Satan's wickedness, God planted holiness. That in the midst of ingratitude and greed, God established generosity and self-sacrifice. That in the midst of grabbing and taking, God established giving of His one and only begotten Son. Even in the midst of the Corinthians' factionalism and division and jealousy and self-centeredness, the Lord's table stood as a symbol of forgiveness and renewal. Let me give you a quick background, a minute and a half. In order to fully comprehend what the Lord's Supper is all about, you have to understand the Passover. You see, the Passover was celebrated by God's people to remember the gracious act of God for delivering them from the slavery of Egypt. 
And that is why you must understand that that Passover meal found its ultimate fulfillment in the Lamb of God who has delivered us from the slavery of sin and Satan. Can I get an amen? Amen. The Passover was an indicator. What's the value of an indicator? Indicator says, go this way. That's what an indicator is. And beloved, that's what the word sacrament means. The word sacrament says a sign. Go this way. There is nothing sacred about the sacrament of baptism. There's nothing sacred about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It says, go this way. It takes you beyond itself. That's what a sacrament is. And the Passover meal found its ultimate fulfillment in the cross of Jesus Christ. The Passover was an indicator. It was pointing to the cross. The Passover was the shadow that reflected the cross of Jesus Christ. The Passover found its true meaning in the cross of Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. And the Old Testament saints who were saved, they were saved by looking forward to the cross. Even as the Bible said that Abraham saw the days of Jesus and he rejoiced. 2,000 years before Christ, he looked forward to it. Just as we in the New Testament times, we look back to the cross and we become saved. The cross is the focus. The cross is the center. We have gone away from the shadow. We went away from the picture. Now we have the cross. It is only the cross of Jesus Christ that anyone, 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 anywhere in the world, anyone, regardless of background or ethnic background or wherever they come from in the world, it is only through the cross of Jesus Christ can you escape the condemnation of hell. And that is why Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's not a church table. It's it's Jesus' table. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I have done for you. Remember the sacrifice. And don't just go through the motions. Remember and relive the moment of agony on that cross when He carried your sin and my sin on His sinless body. Remember to relive that moment of indescribable pain of separation from the Father, which was for the first time since before eternity because of your sin that carried on His shoulders. Remember to experience what it is like for Him. The pure, sinless, holy Son of God carries your sin. Your sin. My sin. I want to illustrate something about the Lord's table that hopefully is going to explain what Paul is saying here. The very first time, almost 40 years ago now, that we ever visited London, the city of London, we were given three maps. We got a map of the city, we got a map of the underground, the tube, and then we had a map of the motorways, they have M1, M2, and so forth. There are three maps. And all these three maps are true in themselves. Each one of them does not give you a complete picture. To get a complete picture, you have to put all those three maps on top of each other. (laughs) But that's very confusing. It will be a bunch of jumbles, and you you, you won't understand. It's very confusing. And that is why a new believer must understand those three maps. In the same way, these three words describe the death of Christ on the cross. First, redemption. Can you say that with me? Then reconciliation. And justification. Each of those three words 
is like the three maps of London. They're accurate and correct by themselves, but for a person to comprehend, especially those who may come into the Lord in the knowledge of Christ, to comprehend this, you have to understand if you try to put all the three maps together, three words together can be confusing. And that is why the Lord's table helps us separate each of those three words, each of those three concepts, either of these three truths helps us separate them. In verse 26, the Lord's table, when you come to it, you proclaim the death of Christ in the past. So you remember the past. You proclaim the death, remembering His death on the cross. But secondly, you remember the present, the present promise of empowerment. Jesus promised to empower us to live this life. Whatever your problems may be, and we all have them, whatever difficulties you're going through, whatever pain you're experiencing, remember His promise of strength and power to live for Him today. That's the present, but also a remembering of the future. Those are the three things. You remember the future the day is coming, and maybe even quicker than we think, and maybe even sooner than any of us think. The day is coming when the Lord will preside over His table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all the believers are going to be gathered together. Don't pervert the Lord's table. Secondly, He said, understand its real meaning. And thirdly, and most importantly, is verses 27 to 34, He tells us how to approach the Lord's table. It is very important, beloved. It is very important to know the right way to approach the table of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, never, 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 never approach it casually. Whoever participates in the Lord's table, it's coming out of these verses, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. What is that unworthy manner? What does that mean? What's unworthy manner? Now, there are several ways in which you can come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Listen carefully. There are several ways of coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Coming to the table out of a habit, participating in the Lord's table just out of a habit, without engaging your mind, without engaging your heart in the process of that participation. Secondly, unworthy manner is when you treat the elements as sacred in themselves, not what they point to, what they represent. The third way, which is, I believe, relevant for not 99% of us, all 100% of us, including your pastor. The third way, participating at the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, is coming with an unconfessed sin, with unconfessed sin, when you come and participate at the Lord's table in any church, carrying bitterness and hatred and anger and living in deliberate disobedience, and they come to the Lord's table without confession and without repentance, that's unworthy manner. When we come to the Lord's table with anything less than love for God and love for one another, we're sinning against God. I want to express an opinion. I always give you an opinion when it's an opinion. It's not the Word of God. 
And I speak as an immigrant who loves this country with all his heart. When I see someone burning the American flag, to me, that person is burning more than just a piece of cloth. They are trampling on the country that this flag represents, and it grieves me. If I'm an authority, I'll outlaw it, but thank God I'm not. (laughs) And so when I go to the Lord's table with an unconfessed sin in my heart, I am not dishonoring the bread and the wine. I'm dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I'm dishonoring the Lord whose sacrifice is represented in these elements of bread and wine. Hear me right, please. Receiving in an unworthy manner does not necessarily dishonor the ceremony or the ritual. It dishonors the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So what is the right way to participate at the Lord's table? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Word of God has the answer, not me. Verse 24, examine yourself before you eat and drink. Sift out the wrong desires. Sift out the wrong attitudes. Sift out the wrong motives. Sift out any sin of thought, word, or actions. Ask yourself the question, have I wronged anyone? Have I deliberately cheated anyone? Have I cheated God of His tithes and offerings? Have I carried an unforgiveness toward anyone in my heart? Do I have bitterness in my heart toward anyone? Am I faithful to my spouse? Or am I filled with pride and seeking honor for myself? Examine yourself, the Apostle Paul said. Confess, repent before you participate. Only confession and repentance qualifies us to coming to the Lord's table in a worthy manner, not unworthy manner. And that is why the Lord's table is only for believers. Verse 30, look at it carefully. Underline it in your Bible. Imprint it. Imprint it in your cortex of your head and your brain and your heart. If a person persistently comes to the Lord's table without confession and repentance, it has not only spiritual repercussions, it can have physical repercussion. Some people actually died as a result of approaching the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. That's what he said here. Ananias and Sapphira, book of Acts chapter 5, there were believers, but somehow in their hearts it chose to lie to the Holy Spirit, lie to the church of Jesus Christ, and they were snuffed out immediately and died, both of them. That's what I call being slain in the Spirit. (laughs) Listen to me. If we don't judge ourselves, if we don't examine ourselves, if we don't confess our sins, if we don't seek His forgiveness, we open ourselves up to be judged by God and by others. God is not looking for perfection. Can you say that with me? God is not looking for perfection. He knows that's only going to happen when we are there with Him in heaven. David, the Bible said of David that he was a man whose heart after God's. You know David was not perfect, right? (laughs) But he knew how to repent. Whenever he came under conviction, he repented of his sin. He didn't try to explain it away. He didn't try to rationalize it. He just wept tears. I want to tell you a true story as I conclude. His name is Dr. George Sweeting. He was the 
chancellor of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. One year in the springtime, he took his family and they went to Niagara Falls. And Dr. Sweeting was talking about being springtime. All the ice was melting and coming down the fall into the river. And he was watching as a great observer that he is, and he looked at these blocks of ice floating down fast as they go over the cliff, over the falls, Niagara Falls. Inside those ice blocks, they're the caucus of the fish that froze inside the ice. And there were thousands upon thousands of seagulls who come in and start picking in that ice, trying to get the fish out of the inside of the ice. And they keep doing this, and they keep doing this, whether it be large or small pieces, and until they see themselves coming close to the brink, coming close to that Niagara Fall, and then they mount their wings, and they fly away and save themselves. Dr. Sweeting tells of a specific seagull that he was watching who delayed his flight until it came to a very dangerous point. This particular seagull was so engrossed in picking on that ice, trying to get the fish out, and so engrossed, and he finally sees that this ice is about to go over the cliff, and he's going to fall in the brink, as it were, and mounted his powerful wings. And he began to flap and flap and flap, even lifted the ice on which his claws were fixed on it, was hooked on it. But it was too late. It was too late. Alas, that seagull has delayed its flight too long so that the claws had become frozen into the ice. The weight of the ice was too great for the powerful, this poor seagull, and he plunged into the abyss. My beloved friends, I plead with you today, I plead with you today, that you comprehend what the Lord's table is all about, that when you come to the Lord's table without self-examination and judging of yourself and repentance, when you come to the Lord's table out of habit and as a ritual, just this is just the way things, we've done it, and, and it's the right thing to do. You are heading for the danger of a believer's judgment, and I don't know what form that takes. Father, I pray, as I pray for me personally, I pray for every one of beloved friends. May you give us a sobering spirit before it may be too late for some. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you wake your people up. The time of ignorance God has overlooked, but now it is time that He commands everyone everywhere to repent. May we be repentant people. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org. 